0: Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Thomas Apt. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice and last summer published his book Bleeding Out, The Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets. He argues that violence is the linchpin of concentrated urban poverty and that therefore we need to address it first. Violence is not only traumatic, but it is the very mechanism by which people are entrapped in deep poverty. The emergency room analogy of a patient bleeding out is fitting. Unless we stop the bleeding first, we cannot tackle the problems that we perceive as being the root causes of violence, like lack of opportunity or poor education.
1: The argument that I make in the book is that we need to address violence first. I'm not making the argument that if you reduce violence, poverty will cure itself, or that it's the only thing we need to do. I'm not even suggesting that it's the most important thing. What I'm simply suggesting is that it's the first thing in order of sequence. Because if you can tackle violence, if you can give people a measure of safety, security, stability, everything else to improve people's lives in that community becomes easier.
0: We discuss proven strategies to end urban violence, what it means to be both overburdened and underprotected by law enforcement, and how undeniably important it is to save lives and help create safe communities. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You wrote a pragmatic and very accessible book with a medical analogy about urban violence. Before we delve deeper into the topic of your book, how do you define urban violence?
1: The way I define urban violence in the book is first urban, meaning happening in cities. It can be large, medium or small cities. And second, I mean violence in terms of physical violence. Much of the data in the book is measured by homicides, whether we save lives or we don't, by reducing this lethal form of violence.
0: When we read about this in the news, how is it often portrayed in a way that is misleading?
1: So many ways. I think there's the conventional, when it bleeds, it leads type of narrative, which is the gory reciting of the particular facts of a case, often without a lot of context. That type of reporting can often lead to a lot of fear and then a lot of anger. And then the second one is sort of two sides of the same coin, which is to talk about urban violence as this inevitable consequence of root causes or structural factors. The conversation is always about something else. So the conversation is about poverty, or it's about values, or it's about guns, or it's about opportunity. And of course, all of those things matter when it comes to urban violence. But ultimately, the thesis of the book is that all of the most rigorous social science tells us a very simple fact, which is if you want to reduce violence, you need to focus directly on the violence. So that's really the important thing and that there's sort of an optimistic takeaway from that. If you use the right evidence and the right data and the right approaches, you can have a significant impact on urban violence in the short and medium term. And you don't have to wait until we create a social revolution that eliminates poverty to address violence, which I think is very important.
0: In fact, uh, I feel like your book upends this idea, right? That we need to tackle the root cause, which is poverty, lack of opportunity in a lot of these neighborhoods. You argue that, in fact, in order to make life better for poor people, we need to start with violence and that urban violence is the linchpin of concentrated urban poverty, holding all the other conditions of such poverty, like joblessness, homelessness, poor education, health in place. So, what's your idea? How can we
1: combat urban violence right now? People often, when they think of urban violence, they sort of think, well, the last thing we'll do is we'll actually address the violence itself. And what I'm arguing is that it in fact should be the first thing you do. And one of the things that I think people need to understand about living in an area that has concentrated urban poverty is that violence may be the most pernicious element of many elements of that poverty, and it makes everything else about that poverty harder to deal with. Simply the trauma that kids, families, adults suffer as a result of exposure to violence, either in the home or in the community, has a tremendous impact on their lives throughout their lifespan. We have studies now that can trace elevated rates of cancer and heart disease back to traumatic things that happened as a child or a young adult. In the book, I review research that basically says that exposure to violence may be the single most important factor, the central mechanism in keeping poor kids poor, in inhibiting their ability to escape poverty. And the way that happens is that violence occupies the brain. When you're exposed to violence, you become traumatized, and that trauma impacts poor kids' abilities to sleep, to focus, to behave, and then all of those things directly impact their academic performance. And ultimately, that affects your ability to earn a living later on. The argument that I make in the book is that we need to address violence first. I'm not making the argument that if you reduce violence, poverty will cure itself, or that it's the only thing we need to do. I'm not even suggesting that it's the most important thing. What I'm simply suggesting is that it's the first thing in order of sequence, because if you can tackle violence, if you can give people a measure of safety, security, stability, everything else to improve people's lives in that community becomes easier.
0: You actually talk about this in great detail about the strategies on how to do this. You talk about focus, balance, and fairness. Let's go there.
1: I had a challenge. Myself and my colleague Chris Winship from Harvard, together with a small army of grad students, we went about reviewing all of the most rigorous social science on urban violence. We ended up looking at and synthesizing over 1,400 individual, high-quality impact evaluations. And then the question was, are there some lessons, some rules of the road that all of the successful approaches that we saw shared? And that's where we came up with these three principles. If you want to be successful in reducing urban violence, you need to be focused, balanced, and fair. So what does it mean to be focused? What it means to be focused is to recognize that urban violence is sticky. Urban violence clusters among a surprisingly small number of people, places, and behaviors. It clusters among, in the typical medium to large American city, two to three to 400 high-risk or proven-risk individuals. It doesn't cluster in an entire neighborhood that's viewed as dangerous. It, in fact, clusters among micro-locations known as hotspots, a certain liquor store, a certain gas station, a certain housing project. And then finally it clusters among a few key risky behaviors like the illegal possession and carrying of weapons this finding of stickiness is very important because there's a lot of stigma associated with violence and often we stigmatize entire groups of people often young men of color and entire communities as dangerous as violent the reality is is that even in the most allegedly dangerous and violent places most people are not violent, and most of the spaces are not violent. And that's very important to understand when you're starting to think about solutions. So the first thing is you need to be focused on the people, places, and behaviors that matter most. The second principle is balance. When we got the evidence back from this massive review that we did, the research didn't really preference sort of soft on crime or tough on crime approaches, we found examples of success and failure in both. When you look across the country, I know of no city that has successfully arrested its way out of crime and violence, but I also don't know of any city that has simply programmed its way out of violence. And so this concept of balance, sticks and carrots, positive and negative incentives, revealed itself. And it's actually quite consistent with human nature. You need both punishments and rewards. And then finally, this principle of fairness. It was really impossible to write this book right now in this moment where we're facing this crisis of confidence in the American criminal justice system and not talk about fairness. When I delved into the research on legitimacy, I found something very interesting, which was that Violence and legitimacy are closely related in that if people don't feel that the state or the criminal justice system or the police in particular are legitimate and fair, they don't use them. They don't call 911. They don't offer information to the police. They don't serve as witnesses or jurors. Perhaps most importantly, they don't use the criminal justice system for its most important and most traditional function, which is the nonviolent resolution of disputes. So they handle these situations themselves. They handle it informally. If someone beats up your cousin, you call your boys. And then a beating leads to a shooting, and then a shooting leads to a killing, and so on and so forth. We see these cycles of violence, crew against crew, neighborhood against neighborhood. It can go back decades. It's also important to understand, legitimacy is not just about fairness. It's not just about treating people equally. It's also about effectiveness. And this is something you you really need to understand if you're going to engage with people in these communities. They're deeply frustrated with law enforcement for at least two reasons. The first reason is that they're constantly hassled. They're the targets for stops and searches and arrests and and ultimately all of the things that lead to mass incarceration. But they're also not protected, and they're also not safe. They are deeply frustrated with the fact that the system that is both overburdening them is underprotecting them at the very same time. To improve legitimacy, you need to address both of those things. As you deliver improved safety, avoid this false choice of We can have uh, less crime and less violence, but then you've got a trade-off on civil rights or civil liberties. You need both because the more legitimate you are, the more effective you will be. There's not this trade-off between fairness and effectiveness. They are actually complements, not substitutes.
0: I think your book makes it very, very clear that without legitimacy, you really can't have peace, you can't be an effective police officer on the street because if you're harassing people, for jumping a turnstile but not arresting the murderer that happened around the corner in broad daylight. Why are you even here? But there is a place for the police. What is actually effective policing when it comes to urban
1: violence? effective policing is focused, balanced, and fair. It's focused on the individuals who are most dangerous It is not just about locking people up. It's also about treating people fairly and engaging them for things other than just enforcement and arrest. One of the hard things to get across sometimes when I speak with people in law enforcement is the idea that even when you're dealing with the highest risk individuals in the highest risk places, you still have to win hearts and minds. Even then, it's important that you have the respect of those people who you are engaging with, even if ultimately you might be locking them up for a violent offense. An unnecessarily adversarial approach is not helpful. I'm a former prosecutor. I was uh, prosecuted street crime right here in Manhattan, rape, robbery, and murder in the early 2000s. The way you should approach these things is professionally and with courtesy and with respect and signaling that this isn't personal.
0: You make a really strong case for procedural fairness so that everybody can understand this is the process and this is how it works. If somebody does get arrested, everybody understands why. And there isn't this idea that it's a personal vendetta by the police or by the prosecutor
1: or by the system. That's such an important point. Procedural fairness is not just about being nice. It's about taking the time to be transparent about what you're doing and perhaps more importantly, why you're doing it. Because no one wants to feel like they're the arbitrary subject of authority. That's true for poor people, rich people, white people, black people. It doesn't matter. The other thing that you see in the literature, which is very important, is this concept of voice. You need to give people an opportunity to have their say. You need to explain what you're doing and why, but then you need to give people an opportunity to respond. That doesn't necessarily mean that you do what they say, but it's very important. I'll give you an example. I'll give you a contrast between a zero-tolerance traffic stop versus a procedurally fair traffic stop. So you are driving along, uh, and you uh, approach a stop sign, and perhaps you sort of do a rolling stop. And as you do the rolling stop, a police officer sees you and pulls you over. The police officer approaches the car, taps on your window to roll down your window. You do that, and he says, license and registration. And you say, sure, officer, but uh, just so I know, why was I stopped? And the officer repeats license and registration and you say of course of course of course uh, i just want to know why I was stopping he says get out of the car and he elevates very quickly that level of intensity no explanation just a very intense use of authority and force now ultimately let's say you get out of the car you produce your license you get back in the car and he actually says i'm going to give you a pass but hey be careful out here you're going to go home and feel very badly about that encounter even if you didn't get a ticket now let's contrast it with a procedurally fair traffic stop you get pulled over for rolling through the stop sign police officer approaches the car you say um why was i stopped and he says well I stopped you because there's been a lot of accidents at this intersection, and in fact, last week, a young kid was killed. So we've been watching this intersection really carefully. I hope you understand, but I'm going to need to write you a ticket. Now, in this situation, you're having a worse outcome. You're getting the ticket, but I'll bet you feel better just in this hypothetical conversation about that stop. Do you?
0: Yes. Yes. That's a great example, actually, because I think when you say procedural fairness, it sounds abstract, but this is a great example to illustrate what that actually feels like in real life. Do you talk about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, as something that is essential to this process of stopping urban violence?
1: Yes. The people that you're dealing with, the highest risk individuals, the people who are likeliest in a particular jurisdiction to shoot or be shot have been through hell and back. They were overwhelmingly victims first. They've often been shot multiple times, arrested imprisoned multiple times. They've been exposed to multiple forms of violence, not just sort of direct violence in the community, but abuse and neglect as children. As a result of these things, they respond to this environment that they're in, and they develop something over time called hypervigilance. We all have fight, flight, or freeze responses to stress. But our bodies are basically designed to rev up and then rev down. But if you're constantly exposed to violence, you never fully get to rev down. The consequences of your system constantly being flooded with cortisol and adrenaline and other chemicals can change the wiring in your body and in your brain. That's what you see with a lot of the young men. They go from zero to 60 in the blink of an eye. The first thing you really need to do is treat that hypervigilance. And you do that through cognitive behavioral therapy. It's very practical approaches to identifying in concrete situations what you think about it, how that thinking affects your behavior, and ultimately Are you getting the results you want? And so a lot of the best CBT is designed to do things to address anger management, interpersonal problem solving, and future orientation. It's very hard to work with a young man if he doesn't believe that he's going to live longer than another two or three years. And so you have to work with them to help them visualize that they could have a long life and that the consequences of things that they do now could impact them way down the line. The most basic form of CBT we all know, which is if you're angry, count to 10 before you do anything crazy. That's the kind of very practical types of strategies that CBT teaches. I really feel that for these young men, we do them a disservice and we set them up for failure if we just assume that they can step off the streets where someone may be literally out there trying to kill them. And then we'd say, oh, well, just step into this job with no training, treatment or support. I think we're setting them up for failure and I don't think that's really fair.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think what I like best about this part of your book is that you talk at length about targeting behavior as opposed to people. This is a very important part that we miss all the time that what we really wanna do is change behavior as opposed to change people and help them have new patterns of behavior.
1: I think that's right. And if you've been around it for long enough, you just can't ignore the salience of trauma. The guys you're dealing with are traumatized. The victims are traumatized. The cops are traumatized. The people who work with these people are traumatized. It's really hard stuff. But one of the things that I hope to get across is that this work, which is all about in some ways avoiding death, is also about preserving and saving life. My experience of this work over now 20 years is that it has been difficult and challenging, but it has been really gratifying and rewarding as well.
0: Tell us a little bit more about that. Why are you passionate about this?
1: I grew up in the 80s and 90s when urban violence was at its peak. Many people don't know this, but in fact, we live in a time right now where Uh, homicide rates and violent crime rates are just over half of what they were in the late 80s and early 90s. When I was growing up, crime and violence was a front of mind issue in poor neighborhoods, but also in working class, middle class neighborhoods as well. And there was a sense that it could happen to anyone at any time. Many people, including myself and people close to me, had been victims of violent crime that's why I think I was initially interested. But I think then I just became sort of more exposed to the work and I was attracted to its meaning. If you're working on issues of life and death, as hard as it is, you know you're doing something important. I know for sure that I have saved a bunch of lives. And that's a sort of incredible thing to be able to say. And Don't get me wrong. I mean, I've made my mistakes along the way and I've had my heart broken more than a few times, but it's undeniably worthwhile, the process of of saving lives. I think that's why I got into it and why I stay into it.
0: Oh, that's really beautiful. Thank you. You share a bunch of stories in your book and you talk to all these people. And I really felt that you have Something to say about redemption for humans. What what have you learned about redemption in talking to
1: people? I think the first thing is that people's behavior is driven largely by their circumstances. And if you were in their circumstances, you might hope that you would make better choices, but you likely wouldn't. And so I've always sort of approached these issues and these people with a measure of empathy. And then the exciting or rewarding thing is that over the years, I have seen a number of people turn their lives around. There are lots of examples of people who have done horrible things who don't want those horrible things to continuously define them. And I think one of the interesting things that maybe some of my progressive colleagues don't always want to accept is that sometimes punishment is actually a part of redemption. Sometimes people start really thinking about the need to make a change while they're in prison, while they have that time out. I have had a number of people say, prison saved my life. Now, we massively over-incarcerate in this country, and I don't want to sort of suggest that incarceration is a great thing, but it's more complicated than people think. And people seek redemption in all kinds of ways. Some people do it through religion. A lot of people do it through family. And I think that when we all look at our own lives, we all need redemption in some way. I find it very compelling to think about how do you make a mistake and then recover? And how do you do that in sort of an honest way and really try to take responsibility for that mistake, but don't let that mistake define you?
0: That's... Incredibly powerful. At the end of the book, you say that it's our patriotic duty to help save the lives of our fellow citizens. As an everyday person like me, what are two things I could be doing?
1: I think the, the first thing is get out of your comfort zone. I presume that you live in a relatively safe community. And I would also presume that that relatively safe community is quite close to a not safe community. And one of the things that I would urge you to do is to get out of your comfort zone, both in terms of people and place. Go to those places that you think are so unsafe and meet unusual people and form relationships and partnerships there. I really think that this crisis of confidence that we're having, this great Fracturing that we're seeing in this country is not going to be solved with a national kumbaya moment. It's going to be solved with a thousand, perhaps million smaller moments of people doing these small things, the difficult things, and creating these relationships and reconciling along the way. I see police officers partnering with street outreach workers who they used to chase around the neighborhood five, ten years before. And those relationships didn't begin with some grand negotiation. They basically said, look, we both wanna save some lives in this community. I don't love you, you don't love me, but we want the same thing. Let's just figure it out and we'll start working together. And then the respect and ultimately the affection happens over time, slowly, bit by bit, as you earn people's trust. I guess my point is don't wait, just get involved. That would be the first thing. And then I would say for your audience, think about how you use your political, social and economic capital. Are you using it in ways that can benefit people who might not at first glance look just like you? One of the things that I find so frustrating in this work is people believe that people who are living in these poor communities accept violence and that they're okay with violence. And that's why the violence is so endemic. Nothing could be further from the truth. Poor people of color, black folks, brown folks, have been fighting in the trenches to address this issue for decades. And they need some unconventional allies. They need some people who come in from outside and don't take over, but say, hey, I'm gonna talk to my counselor about this, or my state senator, or my mayor. There's some obvious common-sense things we can do. If we look at science, we can make some progress. Why haven't we done that? And use that to help the people who have been struggling with this for a long time.
0: Good advice. Last question.
1: Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I'm optimistic intellectually and emotionally. Intellectually, I think we understand urban violence in particular better than we ever have. And we know enough now to make some real concrete positive impacts. But I think that that understanding will evolve. I think we'll get even better over time. And then emotionally, I think that you have to look at the long view. We have come from a desperately brutal past. And millennium by millennium, century by century, decade by decade, we are getting better and better at listening to our better angels. Now, That's not an argument for complacency, but my hope basically comes from if I stayed in the moment every single day of the work that I do, it would be dark because it's all about death and homicide and traumatic assaults and all all of these things. But if I step back and say, given where we're coming from, we are slowly making progress and keeping in touch with the fact that there's not going to be a lights-on, lights-off moment. We're not going to, in this lifetime, create a world where people don't occasionally do terrible things to one another. But what I am hopeful of is that we will make enough progress so that those things are no longer the norm. I would like, in poor communities all across the United States, for murder to be as shocking as it is in the average middle-class community.
0: Hear, hear. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Although this episode is about urban violence, homicide, and in many ways, the failure of protecting lives, this is one of the most uplifting conversations I've had since I started the podcast. Thomas upends our deepest misconceptions about who the individuals are who commit homicide, what it would take to change their behavior, and how punishment and redemption are related. Like we've heard many times in other episodes, we need to put humans at the center of any effort if we want to break the cycle of violence. I found his optimism infectious and encouraging, and I agree. What could be more satisfactory than saving a life? Finally, what I found most hopeful about the promise of addressing violence is what it suggests about what's possible for humans and humanity. We can create thriving, just societies. In our next episode, we'll be doing a season roundup of the forces that support democracy and ensure freedoms. We discussed civic education, voting, corruption, foreign policy, deliberative democracy, equality, the First Amendment, and civil discourse. It'll be the season in a nutshell. Make sure you tune in. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos.
1: Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbul. Additional production by Brooke Sayen. Listen to us online at FutureHindsight.com or your favorite streaming service.